All right, well, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. Uh, I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here, and uh, very grateful that you're with us. Uh, welcome to uh, our gathering. We are in the middle of Advent, as been, has been mentioned, and uh, so this is the second week. Last week, we started our Advent series, and we looked at the story of two characters at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they are people who are living in a time of darkness. They start off by talking about how their people are oppressed by the Roman people, how they're under their governance. And even though they're wonderful, very pious, God-following people, they're doing, they're doing it better than anybody else in the story, they're also living in a very personal moment of darkness as well, where they are unable to have kids. And so we started our Advent series as, as we you know, want to do every year, that Advent begins in the dark. But this is the, the moment that we find ourselves in. And so we talked about that last Sunday, and then uh, we had last Sunday evening a lament night where people shared their stories, and we sang some songs together and read some scripture. And I'm very grateful for everybody who uh, participated in that time. So we started with that idea of Advent begins in the dark, and then uh, Nigel and Jenny read us this song uh, from Mary, this beautiful, this beautiful song that she sings. It's called The Magnificat. Uh, and it's this, this song of praise to God. And so we have to kind of pick up in between. That's the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. But we need to pick up a little bit in between those two moments of the story. What's happened? Because some significant things have happened in between. And so the first thing that happened is that uh, Zechariah, this guy who's uh, unable to have him and his wife, are unable to have kids because they're too old. He goes to serve in the temple, and an angel comes and visits him and says, Hey, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You guys are going to have a baby, and he says, we're just too old. That's impossible. It's not going to happen. And the angel turns to him and says, and I'm paraphrasing, it's too late. It's already happening. And so they are now pregnant, Zechariah and Elizabeth. These people too are, are too old to have kids. It's impossible. And then we br- bring a second character into the story, this character, Mary, who sings the song. And an angel visits her as well and says, you found favor with God, and you are also going to have a baby. And Mary says to the angel, and I'm paraphrasing again, hey, I know I've been homeschooled for a few years, so I didn't get all the sex ed talk, but I think I figured it out, and I don't think I can have babies because I've not had sex yet. And the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. You're going to have this baby. And so we have these two moments. And for some of us, we've just heard this Christmas story so many times that we kind of glaze over these moments of this, the impossibility of these two parts of the story. But I think there's others of us who it affects us in, in one of three ways. When we hear about these impossible moments, like these miraculous things that happen in God's story, the first way that it can affect us is it just, it kind of just niggles at the back of our mind. Like we, we think, oh, it's not a big deal. I still believe, you know, I'm still here. But it's kind of one of those things that if you pushed me really hard, I'd have to probably deny that this, this happened. The second way that this could affect us is it goes a little further, and maybe this is you, maybe this is friends that you have, where they're like, you know, I could, because of these types of stories, I can't believe, uh, I can't follow Jesus. This kind of story is impossible. And I'm not a gullible person. This sounds like people who are pretty gullible. Like if my girlfriend came to me and was like, look, so I know we've not slept together, but I'm pregnant, and it's from God. You'd be like, I think there's probably some better explanations for that. And so we think that these people are just gullible people, and I'm not a gullible person, so I'm not going to believe. Good for you if you do, but I couldn't. It's, a, it's just not, this is not how things work. So that's the second kind of person. And then the third kind of person goes a little bit farther, which is to say, I can't believe this, and anyone who believes this is a bit of an idiot. Anyone who believes something like this is, is gullible, and, and uh, you, you should kind of 
open your eyes and see what's actually going on in this story. Now, if, if any of those three are you, I'm very glad that you're here. And, and even if that's not you, you probably have people in your life who think this exact same thing. And I hope this can be a community where we learn to express those things, wherever we are in the journey of the story, that we learn to express uh, how we, how the doubts that we have. And I'm not here actually to prove to you that Jesus was divinely born. Uh, that I, I think like that's just beyond my abilities. Actually, I, I don't. Maybe if I got some more education or something like that, I'd be able to do it. When I finally get my PhD, you can come back and I'll prove it to you. But I actually think that that's the wrong way of going about it. I think that Christians have have tried to prove that this is true, and I actually don't think that that's what's the point of the story. I think the impossibility of the story is actually built right in for a reason. In, in the, another way of saying it is, I think it's a feature and not a bug of the story. And let me just give you four reasons why I think this. The first is that the impossibility of the virgin birth is meant as an invitation, I think, for skeptical people. It's meant as an invitation for people who have questions and doubts about this. You know, those of us who find this story unbelievable, we often quickly walk away and we say, like, I could never believe, I could never be a Christian because this story is unbelievable and it wouldn't take my doubts seriously. But we've just mentioned two people in the story who have doubts. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They both doubt what's going on. And they're the main characters in the story. They're not like bit players. They're, they're like who the story is actually about. And if you continue to read the Gospels, this is what happens again and again and again and again. More people doubt Jesus and his credentials than anything else. And so maybe what, what's going on, even if you think the story is impossible, you're actually in better company than you might think that the story is actually made for you. And so instead of leaning away, the impossibilities of the story are an invitation to bring your doubts, to bring your fears, to bring your questions, and actually just to continue to read. As many people in the story will say about Jesus, just to come and see, come and see. And the impossibility of this part of the story actually points to that, to bring those questions that you have and continue to journey along and keep reading. And if you have no one else to read with, I'd love to be a reading partner with you and continue to, to walk through the story and see if Jesus is, is who he says he is. Maybe he isn't, but maybe he is. So that's the first reason why I think this impossibility is actually, it's a, it's a feature. The second reason is because the impossibility and unbelievable, unbelievability of this story actually showcases our tendency to colonize stories as modern Western people. It showcases our tendency to colonize stories as modern Western people. And so this idea of colonization, my kids are actually just learning about it in school, so they tell me it's when we take our understanding of the world and we plop it down on people all over the place. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So our friends at 24-7 Prayer Canada, they've just put out this wonderful magazine. And it features the work of this guy. His name is Bear Barnetson. He's a local Indigenous artist. If any of you know uh, Dr. Cheryl Bear, that's her son. And so he, he's done uh, artwork that's featured in this uh, magazine. So I just want to show it to you. Here's a couple pieces. They're quite beautiful. You can go on to the next one. So I just wanted to show a couple to you because I want you to go out and, and buy the magazine. You don't get to see the full, the full Monty here. You just go, go and get the magazine, support our friends at 24-7 Prayer. But here's the piece that I want to focus on. This one right here. That one. Good. So here's what Bear says about this piece of art. He says, The story of the raven stealing the sun and putting it in the sky, as this visual depicts, is well known throughout the indigenous nations of the northwest coast. So this is a very uh, ancient creation story from the indigenous people. And now, I want you to imagine that I go and meet with Bear. 
And I say this to him, look, I'm so glad that you're doing indigenous art. I think it's awesome. It's phenomenal. And I'm so grateful that you're getting in touch with your culture. It's really amazing. And, and the people at my church, I show them your pictures. They all cheered crazily like they've never done before. Um, and uh, that we love it that you're sharing your story, that you're getting back connected, and we want to be an inclusive group of people and attentive to First Nations practices. But a bunch of us in my church, we also attended university. So, like, it's great. Your artwork is so phenomenal. But I, I just want to tell you that actually uh, the bird didn't put the sun in the sky. That's not how it happened. In fact, the sky is not really the sky. It's not a place you can just hang things. It's a massive universe. And the sun isn't really the sun. It's, it's like a huge star. It was made about 4.6 billion years ago. And it's actually from a nebula that collapsed on its own gravity. And at that point, he and everyone else is blanking out. And uh, so I, I'd say to him, but anyways, that's besides the point. You know, but keep your culture. We love the artwork. So great. But I want to just let you know that that's not actually how it happened. So at that point, what would I be doing to Bear and his culture and his artwork? I would be colonizing it. I'd be telling him, from my perspective, it can't be true. And here's, and, and this is what we, I think we do to the ancient literature of the Bible as well, as we colonize it. We bring our modern perspectives to it. And this is how Bear says it about his art and about the virgin birth. This is what he says. Just because something feels difficult to understand or even appears scientifically impossible, it doesn't mean it's not true. There are many ways of knowing and many things that are beyond our human understanding. And this piece that I showed you is called the Magnificat. It's written about the passage that was read for us this morning. And here's what he says. I'm sure that Mary felt this tension between revelation and impossibility. People in first century Palestine knew full well how babies were made. Mary understood that what was being told to her by the angel, that what was being asked of her, was not possible for humans. But it was true nonetheless. And so the invitation here is for us, first of all, not to colonize indigenous stories. That's already happened to them once. Let's not try to do it again. But also not to colonize Mary's story either. And so this story holds truth for its first readers. And it also offers us as modern people a story of truth that we are invited to enter as well. And that's the invitation of the Bible, is to take our story and take ourselves and take the story of Scripture and try to find a way that we can bring the excuse me, bring them together. And this pushing together of two different cultures is exactly what Bear says he's trying to do with his art. Here's what he says. This project aims to hold the stories and understandings of indigenous people alongside the stories of Jesus' birth. And so it's difficult, he says, but this is the creative work that needs to be done for him to be a whole person, to bring his faith and his culture together. And that's exactly the same thing that we're invited to do when we come to stories like this. They rub us wrong, they sound super weird, they're impossible, but we're invited actually not to colonize, but to hear, is there something there for us that we can bring into our stories today? So that's the second reason, is to take a creative and not a colonizing stance. The third reason I think that this story is a feature and not a bug is because the unbelievability of the story points to a fundamental assumption that the Bible has. The story points to a fundamental assumption that the Bible has. So last week we talked about this, that we live in a time of darkness. And uh, I was going back to um, my previous Advent notes to see how I talked about this in the past. So the first 
year that I preached Advent here was 2019. So that was right before, that's when things were still good. I don't know if you remember that time. It was before the pandemic. And I remember the first week of Advent, I was thinking like, oh, I really have to sell this to people, that there's darkness in the world. And now I'm like, three years later, I'm like, it's the easiest sell of all time. It's just like, you, you, it's not hard to say. So the question becomes, what do we do with this darkness? Or in the language of the Bible, like, who will save us? How can we shine light into the darkness? And there's many different answers in our world about this. For some people, we, we, they think, like, you know what, the really big thing that we need to do is we need to, um, we need to be able to change our political system. For other people, they say, you know, what we need to do is actually just redistribute the wealth that's out there in the world. If we could do that, the world would actually be a good place. For people like Jordan Peterson, we all just need to get up in the morning and make our beds. If we could just do that, the world would be a better place. For other people, it's education. If we could get everybody educated, then all bigotry, all racism would be gone. And then for other people, it's fundamentally about the power of the individual. That if we, everybody could just be living their life that they want then the world would be a better place. And the Bible would say, actually, all of these things have something to say to them. They're not completely wrong. But the, the answer of the Bible is a more fundamental one. It's a different one altogether. And that, that actually salvation has to come from the outside. It has to come from outside ourselves because the problem is in here. We just don't have what it takes to solve the problems of the world as human beings. And I'm not just talking about because we're sinful, for example, and that we, you know, we're evil and that we try to do things that hurt each other, although that's definitely part of the equation. But the Bible would also say that our absolute best, the best things that we have to offer, will not fix the world. The, the ways that we put ourselves out there, the ideas that we have, the programs that we, that we do, they're all really good, but they're not enough to fix the fundamental problems of the world. As they say in the 90s horror movie Scream, the call's coming from inside the house on this one problem is in here, and so we need a solution from the outside. Salvation has to come from the outside. Maybe nobody said, said this better than W.H. Auden in his poem for the time being. He says, nothing that can save us, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. This is what the Bible says. We need something impossible eventually to be saved. And so this story presents something impossible for us because salvation has to come from the outside. We who will die, that's part of our nature, that there is darkness that will eventually break us. We demand a miracle. And this is the tension that we live in. But the Bible story says it this way, that God at some point will have to break in. He'll have to come because nothing can save us that is possible. So we need actually something impossible. So I think it's a feature and not a bug. And finally, the impossibility of the virgin birth opens up new possibilities for us. The impossibility of the virgin birth opens up new possibilities for us. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. And I want to just set it up this way. So we've got to think about Mary's situation. Mary is a teenage girl, so she's not like 35 years old. She's a, she's a teenager. She's from a very small town. She's an unwed girl. And she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit in the story. This is an impossibility. It's something that's completely impossible. So what's going to happen to Mary in her story, even though it's a wonderful story for us? We've got to remember that what's going to happen to, to her is that she is going to be shamed by the people around her. In that time in history, if, you, if that happened to you, you'd be completely shamed. And in fact, under the law of that time, you could be killed. You could be killed if you are an unwed, pregnant mother. 
And we know from reading the rest of the story, if you're familiar with the rest of the story of the Gospels, that her life is not going to be easy. This is a blessing to her, but not in the way that we... This is not Chance the Rapper blessing. This is like a different kind of blessing. Her life is going to become unbelievably difficult as she watches her son rejected and eventually killed. And so she's facing darkness. This is what we talked about last week. And yet out of this darkness, she composes one of the most beautiful songs in the, in the story of God. She says these words, my soul magnifies the Lord. And this word magnifies is the Latin word. That's where we get this idea, magnificat from. It's the Latin word here. That God is exalted, that he's lifted up, that I give him glory. And she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's an overflowing of joy from her life. And to me, these words actually are probably the most unbelievable in the story. Like, I totally get that the virgin birth is, is very unbelievable. But these are very unbelievable to me. How could someone in her circumstances sing this kind of a song? And this is why I think even if the story is unbelievable for us, us it, it might be worth our leaning in. Because all of us live in some sort of a darkness. This is what we talked about last week, and our world does. And what does that create in, in us? Like, do you just burst up every morning into the darkness and just is your life like a musical where you're just like dancing and singing, rejoicing songs to God? I highly doubt it. If you're anything like me, they're not. You know, I'm a pessimist, um, which if you're not familiar with that, what that means, it just means you're an optimist, but you have life experience. And so, but I'm a pessimist by nature. I'm always staring at the darkness. For me, it's not like a question of if there's darkness or not. And let me tell you what that stance creates in me. It creates like a woe-is-me attitude. I don't burst forth in rejoicing, singing. That's not natural at all for me. It's more like, oh, woe-is-me. And the bitterness is very easy to take root in my life. That I look at other people's lives and I'm like, oh, why, why do I have to carry this? Other people seem to have it so easy. Or people will let me down. And so I close myself off to other people. That's what darkness creates in, in my own life. But I, I'll say this, I want to, deeply, I want to be a person of joy. I really do, especially as I continue to mature, hopefully, in my Christian faith. This desire for joy, despite the darkness, becomes more and more something in my own life. And it's not the joy of someone who pretends that there's no darkness there. That, that whole life is just kind of like a, a musical. I think it's still, as I said last week, our job to identify the darkness. That's our prophetic task. And to learn to cry out and to share our stories with one another. But there is also this other side of it that I long for and that I see in Mary. This deep hope. This deep joy that I, I really want. And I think as a, a person of faith, she is an example for us. And so what can we learn from her that might help us to actually be people of deep joy despite being in darkness? So I want to take a look at three things as we look at the, pas excuse me, the passage together. So let's start at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. So amidst her darkness, what does Mary see that, that we don't? Well, first is she sees that there is a God. That there's a God who is there. And that may, again, be very far-fetched for us. Some of us might believe that in a very generic term, but Mary takes it one step further, that there's a God who is there and that God sees her. That he is a God who sees. He is not distant. He's not far from us in those moments of darkness, in those moments when we cry out, but he actually sees. He sees you and he sees me. I was, I'd written a bunch of, about this 
that I wanted to preach, but I, I was reminded of, of a passage from one of my favorite sermons from Tim Mackey, who started the Bible Project. And so I just want to read to you what he says. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. For many of us, and this is true for me too, when hardship hits your life, or there's a season of confusion or tragedy, one of our basic assumptions is that this is a sign that God has abandoned me. It's a sign that God no longer is with me. As we pray, we need to dig underneath and ask, what's my assumption there? And my assumption there is that God's role in my life is to keep bad things from happening to me. Because if he was really good and he was really powerful, he'd never let anything bad happen to me, so I'm always content and happy. He continues, you're welcome to believe in that God. I just urge you not to connect that God to anything to do with the Bible. Really, I'd say, let's just make it quick and easy. Just become an agnostic or an atheist, because that will make the whole transition of being disappointed by God much quicker, because that's that's what will happen, is we'll continually be let down by that type of God. He says, because that kind of God doesn't exist. And that's not the promise of this God that we read about today. The promise of this God is that when life is this, in this broken world, broken by human sin and by the sin of other more mysterious dark powers, when horrible things happen, that God is right there, that our God sees. And maybe the season of darkness that you might be going through might be the one where you feel God's presence closer than you ever have before. That's part of the paradox of suffering in the scriptures. And the God of the Bible sometimes rescues his people out of their situation. But sometimes it's precisely the tool that he's using to shape the character of the people that he loves to look more like Jesus. How can Mary well up with joy despite the circumstances that she's in and the circumstances that she's going to face? She sees that God looks with favor on his humble servant, that God is a God who's there. And God is a God who sees that in spite of the darkness, that he is right there with her. And maybe that's where you're at, that you feel like you're just deep in the darkness today, like it's pressing in on you. And this song is here to remind us, and it's a song, it's something we have to continually repeat again and again and again, that God is not distant, but he's very close. In those moments where we think, because it's dark, we can't see him and he doesn't care, the song is here to remind us that he sees and maybe for some of us, we're, we're just in such a dark place right now that we can't actually say those words. It would be very untruthful for us to say, I believe in a God who sees. And so my encouragement to you is to let Mary sing for you. Let this song wash over you if you can't say the words. And to let us, let God's community to come into, to sit with you in those moments of darkness and let us learn how to wait together and remind us to be one another, that God is the God who sees. And if you're one of those people, maybe you're not sitting in darkness, but you know someone who is, I just encourage you to go, to be the hands and the feet, to be the song of Mary to those people, just to go and not offer them like a Christian coffee cup answer where you're like, hey, everything will work out. But just to say, I'm going to sit with you in the darkness and remind you that God is a God who sees you as I see you. Now, the second part is this. Who does God see? So God, if God sees, who does he see? Mary continues in, in the song, verse 54. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So earlier in the passage, Mary says, Oh, God has seen me. 
God sees me, his humble servant. And so there's this idea that God sees me, God sees Mary, God sees each one of us in whatever situation that we're in. But we also know that God's activity in Mary's life will make her life very, very difficult. It'll bring huge amounts of pain and shame. So how can she learn to rejoice amidst her life is kind of going down? How can she rejoice as that's going to be the trajectory? Well, in this passage, she gives us the key that the focus isn't on Mary, per se, that God sees me alone, but actually that God sees us, that God sees the people of God. And it's a communal, not an individualistic focus. And here's, here's the key. We'll all have moments of our life where life is going really well, and it just feels like we're getting blessed by God, and he's just smiling on us. You know, I, I ride, I cycle a lot. And I think these moments, I call them like tailwinds. So you're cycling, and uh, maybe like I haven't ate very well that week, but there's tailwinds behind, and so I'm getting pushed on my bike. And so it feels like I'm just killing it. And it feels good, even though I'm just like, I've just been eating, you know, chips and pop all week. And, uh, but these tailwinds just feel great in your life. And those are easy moments to bless. I work with a guy at, at one of my other jobs, and, and he just bought a house. And he's just saying, oh, it's a Holy Spirit thing. It's a God thing. And I'm not down on him at all. I think it totally is. But it's, it's one of those easy moments, isn't it? For him to just be like, God is with me. God sees me. God blesses me. But it's so much more difficult when we feel like God's not smiling at us at all. There's days when I go cycling when all I face, it feels like everywhere I go, it's just headwinds. Just wind blowing at me and I'm just grinding it out. Maybe I ate salad the whole week and I'm like, I'm feeling great. But it's just headwinds the whole time. It feels like no matter what you do, you can't get up to your max speed. And some of us feel that way in our own lives. It feels not like God's smiling on us, but he's like punishing us. Or maybe unfairly, like I said, that we're carrying burdens. Why do I have to carry this burden when everybody else seems to be doing so well? That's Mary's situation. She's got a massive burden to carry that no one else is going to have to carry. So how does she still rejoice? Well, she does two two things. Excuse me. The first is that Mary knows the story of God. So she says here, God is giving mercy to Abraham and all his descendants. She's, she's quoting this part of very early part of God's story where he makes this promise of God's people in God's place under God's rule, that God's going to do that. And that's not the situation for, for the people of God right now. Like I said, they're oppressed by the Romans, but there's this promise that she's holding on to. And this promise as well that God will bless his people in order that they will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so there's this great hope for them, even as they live in darkness. And so her, her people are waiting in darkness. They're awaiting a savior. That's been their story for hundreds of years. And Mary lives into that story. It's not a story about her. It's a story about God's people as a whole. And this is exactly the story that the angel of God speaks about when he speaks to Mary. This is what he says. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves, Joshua. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Again, referring back to the story. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's all about God's people. Jesus will come to be their forever king. And so even though this is going to mean deep pain for Mary personally, she identifies with the story of God over her own story. She takes her story and she wraps it into a bigger story in the world. Interestingly, she says this in the passage. Earlier she said, God has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She says, me. God's looked with favor on me. But in the passage that we just read, she said, God has helped his servant Israel. 
she's equating the two. And one of the commentators that I said is that read, or read said that Mary's story gets so intertwined with the story of the Bible that you don't know where one starts and the other begins. She's taking her story and she's wrapping it. Her life, which matters to God so deeply, and she's saying, but I'm only part of a bigger story that's going on in the world. So do we want to learn to rejoice in the waiting, in those moments where our personal lives are going down? Then we need to learn from Mary as she takes her story, which in many ways is going to be completely tragic, and she wraps it into the bigger story of the people of God. This is the same thing that Paul does. So often in his letters, he'll just say, you know, I'm wasting away. Like, my story is just really thumbs down right now. I'm getting beat up. I'm going to die. But there's a bigger story being told. And, and the key phrase is, so I can rejoice. I rejoice in my suffering. And this is exactly the same thing that Jesus does. The author of Hebrews 12 says it this way, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. Again, that word, joy, he endured the cross despising its shame. And it's the same invitation for each one of us. You know, one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, he's not a a Jesus follower at all, but he says the default setting of our world is to take our stories and put them at the top of the chain, to make them the most important. And he just says this is just default. It's unconscious. We can't even imagine a different world. He says that to to believe that we are lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation the default setting of of us in the Western world. And he says there's actually lots to commend about this. In many ways, it's positive. But if we allow ourselves to slip into this default, two things will happen. The first is, he says, we'll have this constant gnawing sense of having had lost some infinite thing. This constant gnawing sense of having had lost some infinite thing. That our little stories, by focusing on them, our skull-sized kingdoms that we've, we've missed being part of a bigger story. We'll have this constant sense of that. And the second thing he says is that we'll lose out on what he calls real freedom. Real freedom to be called to something bigger than yourself. A story that goes beyond your own. To have something to rejoice in even when things are completely dire in your life. And to have a kingdom that's bigger than just your skull. And this is the story and the invitation of Mary's song, but also of Christmas. That God very improbably has come into our world. But he invites us in this invitation that his story is interacting with our world for our little stories to take their place. That God cares so deeply about each one of us, about each person that you care about, each member of your family. He cares unbelievably deeply. But that story belongs inside of his. And it's only when we learn how to do this like Mary has that we can rejoice despite our difficult circumstances. So there's a God who sees, there's a God who sees not only me, but sees us. And then finally, there's a God who sees us and exalts the lonely. That's the last piece. A God who sees us and exalts those who are lonely, or lowly, sorry. Let's read again from Mary's song. She says, He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So in this passage, we see a theme that's true in all of the Gospels, but specifically in Luke. And we'll look at it more next year when we go and look at the Gospel of Luke. But it's this theme of reversal. This theme of reversal. It's in this passage that the the proud who are, are up high have been scattered. They've been brought low. He's toppled the mighty. The mighty from their thrones have been brought down. And then the lowly have been exalted. 
And then he satisfied those who are hungry, those who don't have anything. He satisfied them with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. This theme of reversal that is always happening throughout the story. As Jesus says that the first will be last and the last will be first. And this is one of the the last reasons for Mary of why she can rejoice. Because God, as it says, has looked on her humbled estate because she's lonely and exalted, lowly, sorry, and exalted her. And it's the same thing with Israel. That Israel, in its lowly state, in its oppressed state, has actually become exalted in the story of Jesus. And this is what this song says he will do for any of us who find ourselves in these lowly moments. For those of us who are lonely, who are hungry, who are poor, who are in darkness, that are sitting there. And it doesn't mean, I want to be really clear, it doesn't mean that your life is just making gains. That you go from being lower class to middle class, or from middle class to upper class, or whatever's after that, I don't really know. Or that you go from being just like a person who's dishonored in your family to being honored. That's not what God is talking about here. But that we go from a place of shame and darkness in the story of God to a place of honor and light. That we're brought in the story of God to a place of honor. And that's why I'd say it's okay and and even necessary, if we're living in the story, to learn to name the darkness. To, learn the pla- to name the places where we're weak, to name the places that we have failure in our lives, where we're not enough. Because in the world's economy, that's just putting a bad CV out into the world. That's not very good. It just means you're going to be laughed at, you're weak, you're lowly, we are without hope and forgotten. But if in Jesus God is reversing the order of the world, if we see those things about ourselves and we name them, then we're preparing ourselves for a different kind of kingdom to live into a different story, and to live with a different king. And this pattern of, of being lowered in order to be raised is all throughout the scripture. It's in Mary's story, but it's also in the story about Jesus. That's the shape of his story, so beautifully articulated in Philippians 2. It says that Jesus, who is God himself, becomes a human. As the, the Christmas carol says, that he finds himself in mean estate, that he's born in a stable. Not only is he a human, but he becomes a servant. Not only is he a servant, but he dies. Not only does he die, but he dies this death that was reserved for rebels and for slaves. He goes to the lowest point, And because of that, God, it says, glorifies him and honors him. That his name will be lifted up above everyone else's in heaven, earth, and under the earth. And this pattern of life is the pattern of Jesus' life, and it's also the invitation for each one of us. It's the invitation of Advent to find ourselves in those lowly moments and wait for that reversal where our King will come and he'll make everything new and everything right. And it's the shape of life that we're designed to live into. If we say we follow Jesus, that is the pattern of life that we're invited to live into. So how can we learn to rejoice? We listen to Mary's song. And we learn to look to Jesus, to see that there is a God. That's what we celebrate at Advent, at Christmas, is that there is a God who sees us. He's here, and he sees, and he comes, as impossible as that might be. And he's a God who lifts the lowly in his story, in his time, in his way, that this theme of reversal takes shape, that we learn to sing these kinds of songs, and we learn to wait in these lowly moments for our King who will arrive. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this song. Uh, Thank you for Mary's courage to sing it. And uh, the instructiveness that she, as a person who is going to face darkness in her own personal story, can learn to sing this song. So I pray for any of and all of us who are also facing darkness in our lives today and in our world. Maybe we've lost hope. 
for ourselves, for our city, for our world. And I pray that you would teach us through this passage to learn how to wait, to learn how to trust you, and and also to learn how our lives to take the shape of the life of Christ, that we may find in those lowly moments that we may find ourselves to be waiting for you and wait for this rising that you, you call us to and that you will bring through the power of your Holy Spirit. So as we worship now, as we give, as we take communion, may your presence be known and felt here. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to minister to us wherever you are, um, wherever you need to this morning. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.